And uh, we've reached uh, what happens in Mark chapter 9. So let's read from there. Mark chapter 9. And uh, in fact, I think we'll read from the end of chapter 8. So we'll read uh, from uh, chapter 8 and verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when, Peter tu- uh, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If any was ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. A cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when he looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what was rising from the dead <laughs> meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now the other passage I just wanted to read, a very brief one, comes from 30 years later, when Peter, one of the people who at the heart of this incident, remembers what it was like. And he's writing towards the end of his life, uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, about that experience. Second uh, Peter 1 and verse 16 says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And clearly, it was an experience that changed Peter's life. If you read the rest of Second Peter, you see just how. 
Anyhow, let's get into what we're, we're, we're talking about this morning. This is General Lew Wallace, who was the governor of Alabama and then New Mexico in the 19th century. As you can see from his uniform, he was a, a Civil War hero and somebody who'd seen the tough side of life from very early on in his life when his mother died and his father was always away because he was a politician and uh, he was brought up basically by his grandmother. And very early in life, Lew Wallace saw all kinds of things that were horrific. As a general in the um, Civil War, he was ordered to go to the battlefield at Shiloh. And uh, the, because the orders were unclear, he was late in turning up. The battle had already finished when he got there. And he said he could walk from one end of the field to the other, stepping on corpses without putting a foot on the ground. He'd never seen 24,000 dead men in a field before. And he saw lots of horror. He saw lots of difficulty. And he longed to be away from it. He wanted to be a writer. But he'd never really thought in his younger years about Jesus and about God and heaven and all of the great realities of life. And it wasn't really until he was in his 40s that he started thinking hard about it. And one night he was on a train journey and he bumped into Colonel Robert Ingersoll, another veteran of the Civil War that he knew uh, vaguely. And Ingersoll was one of the most well-known sceptics of his day. He was somebody who held meetings across America, talking about how ridiculous Christianity was and how daft it was that you could believe in God in a, a civilised age. And he had a long discussion that night as the train travelled across America. And um, Ingersoll challenged Wallace to go away and write a book disproving Christianity once for all. And he set out to do that. And the more he read the Bible, and the more he started writing this book he was, he was determined to write, the more he realised he didn't believe a word he was writing. <laughs> and the end story of that was Ben-Hur, one of the greatest novels of the 19th century, one of the greatest films of the 20th century. Actually, there have been four films of Ben-Hur so far, and they've had a pretty big impact. The last one was a real turkey, but never mind. Um, that's the way it goes. And uh, he was just changing, looking at the evidence for himself. Bring it up to our own day, and you see this guy, a hard-bitten newsman in America, who again decided to look into the evidence, not because he was interested, but because his wife back in the 80s, or maybe it was the 70s, I can't remember now, the uh, late 70s, had started going to an evangelical church, and he thought, he was aghast, he thought this was ridiculous. He thought something weird had happened to her brain. And the more that Lee Strobel started to look at the evidence, as a newsman who was used to getting the truth out of stories, and printing the facts, the more he became convinced that Jesus Christ really had come from the dead. And so he's written several books now, The Case for Christ and other things, and also this book, The Case for Easter, in which he talks about the evidence for the resurrection. Now this is just a build up to say, that is what we're going to be talking about tonight. <laughs> we're going to be looking at, we've been looking at over the last few weeks, some of the main objections to the Christian faith. And one of the big ones is, can a man really rise from the dead? That was a great stumbling block to people becoming Christians in the days of the early church. See how Paul goes to Athens in the book of Acts and there starts talking about the resurrection and people cannot, cannot understand. How is this possible? And lots of people laugh at him because it just seems such a ridiculous thing. Well, we're going to have a look tonight at uh, various things connected to this. The basic idea, do we know that something actually really happened or is it just legend? Could it all have been Chinese whispers, a story that got bigger and bigger? And then the various theories people have come up with about the resurrection. Knocked down theories such as, well, perhaps Jesus never died at all. Maybe he just came round after he was put in the grave and crawled away and said, oh, it's a miracle, he's risen again. And then three whodunit theories, like, 
Okay, so the body was shifted. Who shifted it? The disciples? The authorities? Uh, the grave diggers? All kinds of theories that people have had about that. And we'll have a look at that and then ask the question, but does it matter? And we're going to do it all in a way that says, well, here are some crisp arguments that you can use with other people uh, who are not Christians to show them how the resurrection still down 2,000 years is compelling evidence when people look at it that draws them towards a conviction that Jesus really was the Son of God. Well now, in looking at the life of Jesus, which we're doing right through this year, so far we've reached uh, the point where we've, we've had a look at uh, the, the way in which it divides up. And we talk, We've talked about the year of obscurity, when they really knew who Jesus was or what he was doing. And we don't know much about it either, although we don't know a few things about it from the Gospels. The year of public favour, when he moved to the shores of Galilee, lived in Capernaum, had his disciples around him, started doing miracles and, and, and preaching around the area, and soon attracted an enormous falling, tremendous popularity. And then the year of opposition, the year when everything started turning around. And this morning, we've reached the year of opposition, and uh, we're, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened when people started turning against Jesus and how his whole ministry changed as a result. Last time, they were, we were talking about some of the different places he went to, uh, Samaria, Galilee, Decapolis, that kind of thing. We talked about different things he did and the different kinds of people he ministered to in those places and just trying to get a handle on what Jesus' ministry was all about. But after those experiences, the next thing that happened was that Jesus, still based in Capernaum, went right up to the north of the country with his disciples, up to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a border town, about as far north as you could go in Israel. And among the teaching and the preaching he was doing in that area, he called his disciples together and said, it's just before the passage we read in Mark chapter 8, who do people say that I am? He said, well, you know, there are all sorts of theories about you, Jesus. Some people say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Other people say you're Elijah, all sorts of things. And he said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And at this point, there's an uncomfortable silence. And then the one who always puts his foot in it breaks the silence because he'll always have a go. Whatever question you ask him, he said, well, Jesus, we've come to the conclusion that you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And you can almost hear the sharp intake of breath from Jesus. And the relief in his voice as he says, that's brilliant. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You didn't get there just by thinking about it. But God himself, the Father, revealed it to you. And then he starts talking about something completely different. He starts talking about the fact that he has got to die. And it's at this point that Peter gets it all wrong. and says, oh, Jesus, you're just having a bad morning. No, don't worry. And Jesus says that sharp thing to him. Get behind me, Satan. Because he sees behind Peter's words someone who's trying to manipulate him and pull some strings and get Jesus drawn away from this purpose of dying, which is going to be the heart of, of, of what he achieves here on earth. It seemed crazy to the disciples at that point. But from this point on, you find Jesus talking about his death more and more and more. And the Gospels tell us he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Because he knew that was where it was going to happen. So Mark, Mark's gospel, the one we've read this morning, divided neatly into two. Chapters 1 to 8 take you right up to Caesarea Philippi and up the mountain where the story of this morning happens. And then from 9 to 16 you're coming down the other side, heading towards Jerusalem and death. After death, resurrection. But the disciples don't understand this. And even at the end of the passage we've, we've read this morning, you find them saying, what does resurrection from the dead actually mean? 
They couldn't grasp the fact that Jesus was saying, I am actually physically going to die. And so before Jesus starts on his journey south, there's a tremendous experience. And that's the thing we've read about this morning. And it's called the transfiguration. Jesus takes three of his disciples up the hill and uh, something amazing happens there. Let me just remind you of what the facts actually were. What happened in the transfiguration? First of all, a week before, Peter confesses who Jesus is. And Jesus says at that point, listen, you've got to take up the cross if you're going to follow me. And then Mark makes it very clear that it's six days after this happens that uh, the transfiguration takes place. And clearly there's a link between what Jesus is saying there and what happens on the mountain. The weirdest thing that Jesus says, I suppose, in, uh, in that speech in chapter 8 is, there are some people standing here who will see the kingdom of God before they die. What did that actually mean? Well, Mark says, and only six days after that, guess what happened? Jesus took them up a hill. And the Greek makes it clear that the two things are connected. It's, it's as if Mark was saying, so Jesus said this, and do you know what happened next? And each of the three Gospels that gives us this transfiguration story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, say the same thing. They make that connection between what Jesus says there and what happens six days further on. So Jesus says those things. And then six or eight days later, Jesus take, takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. I say six or eight because in Matthew and Mark, it's, it was six days later. In Luke, it's, it was about eight days later. Now, that's not necessarily a contradiction, because we know that Luke would have had a copy of Mark in front of him. There's so much uh, connection between those three Gospels. They would have known uh, about this. It's just that Luke is putting it in a slightly different way. He's saying, about a week later, and he uses the word about. So he's not giving an exact measure of time, whereas Matthew and Mark say, no, six days elapsed, and then this happened. Now, clearly, if Jesus said the words on day one, and then there were six days... And then it happened, that would make eight days. So when you say eight days or six days, you're talking about the same thing, aren't they, really? And so it's not a contradiction in Scripture, whatever they say. All three of those Gospel writers are trying to make it clear those two things are connected. Okay, so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and his appearance changes. His garments are dazzling white. His face is just different. It's, it's radiant. It's a light is shining out. Now this is probably happening late in the evening. That's what most commentators down through the ages have, have assumed. Because the disciples get very, very tired and they start falling asleep. We don't know that for sure. But clearly if the light was fading around them as they reach the top of the hill and Jesus suddenly starts what, glowing, it's weird. And then two men appear and the disciples are able to tell that one is Moses and the other one is Elijah. Now, I don't know how they worked that out. I mean, Elijah's clothes were pretty distinctive. Uh, he, he, he used to go about looking a bit like John the Baptist did just a few years before. And uh, Elijah was very easy to tell from his garments. Moses, I'm not so sure about, unless he was carrying a couple of tablets of stone or something like that. I guess they knew more because of the conversation that was going on. Because although they felt drowsy and they almost fell asleep, when they woke up fully, they realised these two guys were talking to Jesus about this death and resurrection, his exodus, to use the Greek word, which he was to uh, uh, accomplish at Jerusalem. It's not the usual word for a death, but it is, it, it is a word, his departure. It almost suggests a planned death. Something that wasn't going to be an accident. Something that was absolutely part of a plan that Jesus was going through. And it's interesting that when you read uh, the verses in Second Peter, 
that memory uh, of, of the transfiguration, which we, we had a look at just a few minutes ago, the, the verse immediately before we started reading talks about Peter's death. And he says, I'm going to be dying soon, but I will leave you as strong a memory of these important things as I possibly can. He says, my exodus is coming. <laughs> and it's funny that he should use that rare word, which is used by Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's talking to those two great heroes of the Old Testament. So they realize it's, it's Moses and it's Elijah because of the way they're talked, because of the experiences that they have had that they're saying, yeah, I remember I was like that and, and this happened to me and so on, which connects with Jesus. They, we are looking at two of the greatest heroes of all time and they are dead and they're here and they're talking to Jesus. What is going on? And they cannot understand what's going on. The disciples gradually become aware of the glory of Jesus and they become aware of something else as well. They become aware that these guys are just about to leave. They've been sleeping through the most exciting interview uh, that's ever happened in their life. It's been happening right in front of them, and they've woken up. And there's Moses, there's Elijah, there's Jesus, and it says in, in one of the Gospels that they are just about to leave. And it's at this point then that Peter feels, we've got to say something, we've got to do something. That's Peter, isn't it? Always on every occasion. Don't panic, don't panic, let's say something, whatever it is, even if it's ridiculous. And so he comes out, Rabbi! You should think it's a stupid, dumb word to use about Jesus at this point, because Jesus is clearly much more than just a teacher, isn't he? Bye-bye! Um, uh, it's good for us to be here! And then, yeah, well, duh. <laughs> the word he uses isn't a special word. It's just good to be here. It's, it's a great thing. It's good. So um, let's build three shelters. Let's go and get some, some wood or, or, or whatever we can find, branches, and we'll build three little 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 houses on the hillside. And uh, you and uh, Moses and, uh, 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 and uh, Elijah can just go on talking. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Fantastic. He's not talking about building three cathedrals or something like that. He's just talking about a temporary shelter. Why? Because he wants to keep them there a bit longer. He doesn't want this great experience to end. But look what he's doing. He's putting Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all on the same level. And guess what happens? A cloud comes down over the top of the hill. And that's why many people think this is Mount Hermon we're talking about, one of the highest mountains in the very north of Jerusalem. Because you can get sudden clouds descending on the summit very quickly and then moving off again. And a cloud comes over them. And in the midst of the cloud, they can't see anything, but they can hear a voice. And the voice is saying, this is my son, with whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. Never mind Moses, never mind Elijah, listen to him. He's the heart of the whole thing. Yes, I know. It's been prophesied that Moses and Elijah will show up in the end of time. And you probably think, oh, if we can only keep them here, this will be the last days and then the kingdom of God will happen and it'll be wonderful. We'll all be sitting on thrones. Forget that. Just listen to Jesus. So that's what happens. And then the cloud descends, the voice speaks, and Jesus is standing on his own as the cloud clears. No Moses, no Elijah, just Jesus. It's as if God is saying as clearly as possible, this is what you need to be looking at. Forget the other stuff. So, we've got to ask, well, what all, all, is all of this about? And they're, and they're told not to speak of it and before Jesus rises again. And they're not sure what this means, because it, surely if Elijah is showing up now and he's supposed to come before the great day of God's kingdom starts, there's no room for a death and a res resurrection in between. So, Jesus can't be talking about a real death and a real rising from the dead, because that doesn't happen. So, so, what is he talking about? And they really don't understand that for some years later on. So, what have we got? We have got three dazed disciples. <laughs> we have got two heavenly heroes. 
but we will only get one transformed teacher. What was the transfiguration all about? Why this sudden miracle? Nobody could see it but three confused men who didn't even understand it. Let's have a quick look at that for a few minutes. Let's look at those six different groups. First of all, the three days disciples, Peter, James, and John. You might ask, why were they given this special privilege? Why them more than any other uh, disciples out of the 12 that were there? I think there are various reasons for that. For one thing, their past relationship with Jesus. These were guys who had been friends with Jesus for a long time. Perhaps they were even related to him. Distantly, but they were related to him. They had grown up together in, in Capernaum, these three. They were a very strong unit, and Jesus had become part of that unit. And so although Jesus loved all of his disciples, and he cared for them all, nonetheless, these three were kind of special in different ways. And that's the way that God tends to work, isn't it? He gives us friends whom we are closer to, whom we relate to more than other people, simply to help us and encourage us. And keep us going. You see that happening all the way through the Bible, don't you? Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, Moses with his, his two siblings. All sorts of people, all, all on the way through the Bible. Elijah had Elisha. And uh, it's, God sends along people who humanly can help us and keep us going. And that was very much one of the functions that Peter, James, and John performed for Jesus. It wasn't that they were an elite little club at the heart of the disciples, because there were jealousies amongst the disciples, obviously there were, but they don't seem to have been Peter, James, and John against the rest. Jesus balanced it absolutely perfectly. He gave us an example of what it's like to have special friends whom you're close to, and yet have time for everybody else as well. So there was a past relationship with Jesus. Second, there was a present leadership in the group. They were emerging as people who were spokesmen. I mean, most of the time they wished that Peter would shut up and hold his tongue, but nonetheless, he was a leader. He'd say things and do things that the others were at risk. James and John uh, saw themselves as leaders as well, and uh, clearly they had a lot more to say than some of the other disciples, even when it was wrong. And uh, uh, they were uh, leaders of the group, and Jesus knew that when they went down from the hall, just stunned and amazed and going, oh boy, oh boy even if they couldn't tell the others about it at this point. Nonetheless, others would notice a change, and they'd realise that Jesus had done something in the presence of those three, which was just absolutely incredible. And then third, I think, there was their future career after Jesus' death. These guys were all going to be leaders in the early church. James was going to be the first one to lose his life in AD 44, when Herod singled him out as a vital Christian leader and killed him off. Why did he pick James? Because he was so important to the early church. Then uh, John carried on living for years and years, decades in fact, after um, his brother. Uh, he was still around almost at the end of the century in Ephesus, leading the church there. And he became one of the most strongest Christian leaders of the first century AD. Peter, well, he died around about AD 64, about the same time as Paul. Uh, in, in, um, in, in Rome, and he was crucified like his, his Lord. Why? Because he was an outstanding leader too. So for all of these, these, these reasons, Jesus said, Peter, James, John, you come with me, the rest of you get and get sleep. So what about Peter, James, and John? Why did Jesus keep on picking them? Because there are at least three occasions why he chose them. Well, there are three times when Peter, James, and John went where the other disciples couldn't. Do you remember the raising of Jairus' daughter? 
Jairus, this, this, this Jewish leader who came to Jesus and said, listen, my daughter's at the point of death. Can you come and save her? And he goes to the house where he's told she's already died. And he goes upstairs with the child's parents and Peter, James and John. And then Jesus does that miracle where he, he just takes the little girl's hand and says, Talitakumi, little girl, get up. And she wakes up and Jesus shows that he has power over death. Then there's a transfiguration, which we've just talked about. Peter, James and John, nobody else. And finally, in Gethsemane, the disciples are all there, apart from Judas, obviously. But Jesus chooses Peter, James and John to go further with him to hear him praying. And once again, they see Jesus in the presence of death. Because this is what it seems to be about. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher of the early 20th century, said this, each time he took these men aside, Peter, James, and John, he conducted them into the presence of death. These men, of whom one was afraid, and the other two imagined there was nothing to fear, were led through this private and special ministry of infinite patience that they might see the master's connection with death. That's the presence of these men on the mountain as part of a perfect scheme. These were experiences which the master was storing for them, which should have their explanation in days which were yet to come. Thus death was transfigured for these men through the patient process of a special training which the master took them. And uh, they learned things about Jesus' death through these three experiences. What actually did they learn? This is part of um, Caravaggio's famous uh, painting of the death of St. Peter. He said, okay, if you're going to uh, uh, execute me, if you're going to crucify me, according to legend, then crucify me upside down, because I'm not worthy to die in the same way as my master. And clearly, Peter's attitude to death had changed quite a bit, hadn't it? Because when Jesus starts saying, you know, guys, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem, and there I'll be taken and tried and crucified. Peter, no, 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 you're not going to die, Lord. And clearly there was a fear of death in Peter at this stage, which re-emerges, doesn't it, when uh, a serving girl, as Jesus has been arrested and seems to be heading for death, says, yeah, you were with them, you speak with a northern accent, you're one of his followers. No, no, I tell you, I never knew the man. Peter shrinks away from death. James and John are different, aren't they? They'll take it on, because um, when uh, their mother makes them come to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can we sit on thrones beside you? Jesus says, oh, come on. Are you guys able to be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised by? Are you able to go through the same experiences? Are you able to die? And they, yep, yep, we're ready. We can do it all. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, you know, you're going to learn more than you have, you have done so far. And some of these things will happen to you. But you are not ready. No, by no means. So they have an, a, a wrong attitude to the whole subject. And what they learn from the experiences that Jesus puts in it? First, I think that Jesus must be crucified. His death is part of the plan. It's not an accident. It's not something that's gone wrong. Jesus needs to go to the cross. Second, they learn that Jesus must be trusted. Even when you don't understand what he's talking about. Even when you don't see the way clear to the kingdom of God through death and resurrection and everything else, you've just got to go on with it. And the voice from heaven says, forget Moses, forget Elijah, hear him. And third, I think they've learned that Jesus must be followed. That wherever he takes you, even if it's down a path that you don't understand or recognize, even if it involves you in things that you never thought would happen to you in your life, trust him, follow him. Go where he goes, because that's the only way to make sense of what you're involved in. 
So, so much for the day's disciples. How about the heavenly heroes? What happened with them? Why Moses and why Elijah? Well, people usually say they represent the two great sections of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And of course, Moses is the one who gave the law. Uh, Elijah was a prophet. And together, those two parts of the Old Testament lead towards the coming of the Messiah. So Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And the Messiah is Jesus. So these are the two parts of the Old Testament that point forward to what is happening now. And it's great that they are sent there. So they're sent there symbolically in that way. Incidentally, though, isn't it great that Moses and Elijah had something to do even after their death. Because if you think about the way they died, it tells us that your departure from earth isn't necessarily the end of your story of service. Some people think that, you know, when we're finishing here and we go up to heaven, we sort of sit on a cloud strumming a harp, practicing new chords for the rest of eternity. It's not that way. What the Bible seems to say about heaven is we're still at work there. God still has jobs for us to do. There are responsibilities. We will reign with him. That involves doing something. And so work is something that doesn't stop. You get down and you think, oh, I can just sit back forever now and do nothing. God has still got a purpose for you. You don't just sit on a cloud and vegetate. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Moses, whose ministry on earth ended abruptly, The Old Testament says that at 120 years old, his eye was undimmed and his vigor was unchecked. I wish I knew his secret. You know, uh, he was taken away and he never got to go into the promised land. He got to look at it from the top of Mount Nebo, but that was as far as it got. And in this painting here by James Tissot, you see the, 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 the kind of wistful longing represented of a man who feels he's been cut off before his job is finished. And you think of Elijah. He never actually died. He was taken up into heaven in a fire chariot. He had a nervous breakdown and said, I, even I only am left. And God said, actually, no, I have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're only one of many of my servants, but you have shown that you're not ready for the next stage. And so, Elijah, I'm already planning the next stage. You're going to be taken away out of the situation. You are not going to bring about my future all by yourself. So both Moses and Elijah left this earth before they'd finished everything they dreamt of. Isn't it great? that God still honours those two incomplete servants by sending them back to talk to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because they knew things that uh, were, were, were useful for Jesus in his human form right now, contemplating death to think about. For one thing, they knew the responsibility of power. They were people who had done miracles too, just like Jesus was. And they knew how that could affect the way you were. They knew the uncertainty of, is God going to send his power through me? Is it actually going to work? Is it going to happen? In the same way as the human Jesus did. Because he was completely dependent on the power coming to him from his father. They knew the temptation of taking the glory for themselves. Um, Elijah performed that fantastic miracle on the top of, of the mountain and expected everything to change around him. And as the people of Israel said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, for the first time in 40 years. And it changed nothing. Jezebel just set out to kill him at that point. And Jesus was going through the same kind of experience. He'd done work in power, works of amazing uh, demonstration that God was working through him. And what was happening? People were turning against him. They weren't listening to what he said, despite the miracles. They liked the miracles. They didn't like the message. And Elijah could say, yeah, I've been there. I know that, Jesus. 
Moses, again, knew what it was like to give in to temptation, to strike the rock and see water gushing out and saying, hey, there you are, guys, I've done it for you, and give the glory to himself instead of to God. And so they knew the responsibility of power. They knew the reality of pressure. What is it like to lead people who are unresponsive? Do you know that Moses and Elijah are two of the only three people in the Old Testament who said to God, take away my life, I've had enough. The other one was Jonah, just in case you're in but he didn't show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so they were people who had been right to the end of the tube, right, right, right to the end of the rope, as far as uh, serving God was concerned. And they'd, they'd almost given up. But Jesus never gave up. And Jesus needed strengthening and helping at this point. Third, they knew the risk of pride, of taking it all on yourself, of feeling that you were the only resource that God had. It was vital that Jesus stayed in humble dependence on Heavenly Father. And so to strengthen Jesus' resolve, it was never in question, but humanly Jesus needed those emotional resources of somebody who could say, I've been there, I know what this is like. And so they talked about Jesus' death and what it was going to mean and what it would take to get him to that point. Then there's a final thing. With this, we're finished. Untransformed teacher. What did the transformation do for Jesus? I mentioned a few weeks ago this guy. Alexander Balmain Bruce, one of my famous dead Scotsmen, and uh, we talked about the fact that he'd written a book, which is still available in many, many different forms, as you can see, called The Training of the Twelve, about the Twelve Disciples. So out of curiosity, preparing this, I, I, I went to um, his chapter on the Transfiguration and thought, what does he make of this? And he takes a very different tack from Campbell Morgan, that we've seen earlier on. Campbell Morgan said, well, this is obviously basically for the disciples. They, they had to see the glory of Jesus manifested before them. And that is true in some ways. But Bruce says something different. He says, you know, a lot of this was for Jesus himself. It really was. Because it gave Jesus just the boost and the stimulus he needed at a moment when you really needed help to move on in God's service. He said this. It was an aid to faith and patience, this transfiguration, especially vouchsafed to the meek and lowly son of man in answer to his prayers to cheer him on his sorrowful path towards Jerusalem and Calvary. Three distinct aids to his faith were supplied in the experiences of that wondrous night. What three aids to Jesus' faith? Well, the first, he says, the first was a foretaste of the glory with which he should be rewarded after his passion. Just as Jesus' eyes were focused on the next six months, the journey down towards Jerusalem, the certainty he would be arrested and tried, the hatred he would feel coming across to him, the agony of death, the moment when he'd cry out in the garden, if this cup can pass from me, then take it away, Father. But still, I'm determined to do your will. As Jesus looked at that, it was important that he'd look to the further horizons as well, wasn't it? He was going to see glory. Isaiah 53, that chapter he knew so well about the suffering of the Messiah, says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though his, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus went to the cross, enduring the shame. He knew there was more beyond, and the transfiguration was a tremendous reminder of the glory that he was going into. So it said, first and foremost, I'm going home. This is uh, Fanny Crosby, who was the famous blind poetess of the 19th century. 
She was never able to see. There's a dispute about whether she was born blind, whether it was something that happened to her. Uh, as with weak eyesight, a doctor put mustard poultices on her eyes and tried to get her right again, and uh, uh, just did the wrong thing. And, but the, the upshot was she was blind for life. And she wrote thousands of poems and hymns and cantatas. She was one of the most incredibly industrious people in the 19th century. What she did in rescue missions in her native New York was incredible too. The that she wrote for Sankey and, and Moody in, in, in the work that they did around the world. She was just so incredibly full of life. And yet she knew that her life at the moment, sad as it was, wasn't all that there was. And she wrote this hymn. Someday the silver cock will break and I no more as now shall sing. But oh the joy when I shall wake within the presence of the king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story, saved by grace. And beyond this life, she knew there was a world in which she wouldn't be in darkness anymore. And it's amazing how many of her hymns use this idea of sight, of seeing. I can't see now, but I will then. And that's the great thing that keeps Christians going, isn't it? The sense that this isn't all there is. There is more beyond it. And there are other verses in the hymn, which if we had time, I would go through with you, but we have no time. So let's leave that. Bruce says, that was one thing. I'm going home. But a second source of comfort was the assurance that the mystery of the cross was understood and appreciated by the saints in heaven, if not by the darkened minds of sinful men on earth. The disciples were having trouble understanding it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and other people were carping and criticizing, and they couldn't understand the path that Jesus was on. And it seemed that on earth there was nobody who was a reassuring voice that Jesus was on the right path. And then Moses and uh, Elijah appear, and they say, we know what you're talking about. We know where you're going. We know you have to go to Jerusalem and die there. And so it wasn't just these guys in the picture there, Jesus' opponents, even the people that he was serving, even the people who were his closest friends and his disciples, they couldn't understand the whole thing. No wonder he needed to understand, I am understood. This makes sense. I seem to be completely on my own, but I'm not, because heaven itself is behind me. What was the third thing? Well, a third Sir Bruce and the chief solace to the heart of Jesus was the approving voice of his heavenly father. That was what mattered more than anything else. God spoke directly. And this was the second of three times that the father would speak audibly in Jesus' life and you'd hear the voice of the father. The first time, if you remember, was back when Jesus was baptized. He comes up out of the water and God breaks his silence, breaks through the heavens to say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The transfiguration was the second of those. And then later on at the end of the next month, when Jesus is facing uh, death in, in, in Jerusalem, he says, I came to, to, to the earth for this hour and I can hardly bear it. Father, but glorify your name. Whatever happens, just glorify your name. And God speaks and says, I've glorified it once, and I will glorify it again. You know, Jesus, I've glorified it through your life. You have shown your glory to the people around you. I am going to glorify it again through your death and resurrection. It's no mistake. It's no sad end. It's the ultimate victory that you came to earth for. And so Jesus ends by this assurance too. I'm understood. Uh, I, 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 I'm doing the right thing. And I have done what the Father wanted. So the Apostle Paul ended his life, wasn't it? I fought the good fight, he said. I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, says Paul, 
This is the way it works for all Christians who stay faithful to their calling, who serve God throughout their lives, to whom death is just an incident in life, a stage that we pass through to get to something far more glorious, not only to me, says Paul, but to everyone who has longed for his appearing. Those are some of the lessons I think we can learn from the, the Transfiguration. Kev, are you coming back up? <laughs>